My name is Greg Kodrowski, and this is my podcast, Theology 101. I like to study the Bible, and I don't think the Bible is really that difficult to understand. For the most part, it's really pretty simple, and simple is better. So if you're like me, and you want to know more about the Bible, or if you just want to hear more about the Bible, stick around. And if you want to know more about me or check out my pedigree, Google me or visit my website, theology101.net. Evangelism. I want to talk about evangelism. Well, maybe I don't want to talk about evangelism. I'm probably going to feel kind of hypocritical talking about evangelism because I really probably should evangelize more. But I'm still going to talk about evangelism. You know, our last message in the last podcast, I talked a little bit about, um, I mentioned this idea of biblical philosophy. I want to talk about a biblical philosophy of discipleship. And I want to talk just, I'm going to mention that right now because I don't want anybody to get freaked out with the word philosophy. We're not talking about the world's philosophy. We're not talking about philosophy at college. We're talking about basically a how-to We took a look at uh, a biblical theology of discipleship. We looked at what the Bible said about discipleship, and we broke it down. We looked at uh, disciple, which is the word that's mentioned in the Bible, and what is a disciple, how does someone become a disciple, and and then we looked at discipleship, which is the word that we we made up that uh, refers to this work of discipleship and making disciples, and then we talked about discipling, and who's responsible for it, and we saw, yeah, well, we are. And then... Right at the end of that, okay, so we understand what a disciple is, what discipleship is, how discipling happens, and who's responsible for it. Okay, so now we take that biblical theology, that theology that's based in the Bible, and now we want an applied theology. We want to take that and apply it. So here's where we start moving into philosophy, okay? It's our philosophy of discipleship. If we say discipleship is made uh, made up of uh, being and making disciples, okay, how do we make a disciple. A disciple is made through evangelism and edification. So we evangelize the lost and we edify the saved, and that's the process. Okay, how does that happen? We're not talking about processes yet. We're not talking about programs yet. We're not talking about the, the practical, tactical stuff. We're not talking about, okay, which books do I use? Which materials do I use? Do I do one-on-one? Do I do in group? What I, no, we're not talking about that yet. We need to talk about how how this stuff happens. If we're going to make a disciple, evangelizing the lost, how does that happen and what's my part? Okay, because look, look, if monergistic Calvinism is is the biblical means of evangelism, dude, I'm going to the movies. Okay, I'm getting my Netflix and my Hulu and my Amazon Prime paid up. Why? Well, if monergistic Calvinism is right, then God does everything in evangelism. He does it all. So what's the point? I'm going to go do something else, because sometimes evangelism is kind of grungy. It's kind of difficult. Sometimes it's cold. Right now, I'm we're in January. I'm recording this on January 3rd, and so it's cold out. Who wants to go evangelize when it's cold out? Your toes get cold. How do you pass out tracks with mittens on? And so we need to understand what the Bible says about the means of evangelism. How does this how does this evangelizing thing happen? You know, you look at a lost sinner and how does he get to be a saved sinner? How how does this happen? Well, that's what we're talking about. And that's our philosophy, okay? And then we're going to take a look again um, at the philosophy of edification. 
And once we, we take a look at evangelism, we're going to take a look at edification, because once a, once a person gets saved, well, that's not the end of the deal. That's just the beginning. That's the new birth. And then that new Christian needs to grow in Christ. Okay, how do we grow in Christ? How does the growth in Christ happen? Again, if we look at it and say, God does everything, right? God does everything, because God gives the increase. Well, okay, then I'm going to the movies, right? Then God can grow me up while I'm watching, you know, something fun and entertaining and eating a bunch of popcorn. So we have a part in this process of making disciples, evangelizing the lost and edifying the saved. We have a part. We really need to define that part so we don't get mixed up thinking that that God's part's our part. Okay, that's part of the problem with Calvinism. Calvinism thinks our part's God's part. Okay, so when I say biblical philosophy of discipleship, that's what I'm referring to. I want to look at what the Bible says about how this process takes place and what my part in the process is. And we're going to start with evangelism. We are going to start looking at means and goals. Okay, and that word means is really, really hard to get across in my little audio podcast. M-E-A-N-S. The means, okay? The means by which something happens, okay? It's the process. We're going to talk about means and goals in evangelism, and then we're going to take uh, edification. We're going to do the same thing, the means and the goals. And so both edification uh, and evangelism, this this whole process of discipleship has means and goals, okay? The means, once we understand the means, we take we take a look at the, uh, the, the big picture and we say, okay, what are we talking about? Like today, we're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to talk about the means of evangelism. That's how a disciple is made in the sense of created. Someone becomes a disciple through evangelism. It's that first step in the discipleship process. When we talk about means, what are we, what are we saying? Okay, when we talk about means, we're, we're looking at the components, okay, the, the big chunks of this process. I, I know we could, we could break it down and make a PhD dissertation out of it. I mean, uh, why not, right? Everybody else does, you know, everything else for PhD dissertations. We, we could do something on this. We're not going to do that. I, I want to keep it simple. I want to show you that there, there's basically four means, okay, four big parts, four big steps, um, that God takes a sinner through in order to get him saved. Okay, we got four, um, and I'm not going to run through them. We'll, we'll, we'll get to them all. I, I'll hit you up. Okay, I'll, I'll give them to you. Ready? This is what we're going to talk about in this podcast, the means of, of, of evangelism. This is how evangelism happens. This is the, the process, the components of this process that God uses to take a sinner from, from his lost state to, to being saved in Jesus Christ. It starts with conviction, and then it moves up to the cross, the preaching of the cross to the sinner. And then after the cross, we have the conversion. The sinner converts, he repents and believes on Christ, and then we have regeneration. Okay, so those are the four components, the four means of evangelism. That's what we're going to talk about. So first means, number one, number one on the list, conviction. Okay, we, we got to start here, the personal conviction of the sinner. Why? Well, because, Bill Hybels, there is no seeker. Okay, I am sorry. You know, if, if, if somebody doesn't understand that, the Bible is very clear, very, very clear. The Bible says that man, sinner, left to himself, will never seek God, okay? So, you know, maybe if we use the term seeker 
to refer to a, a, a lost person, I don't think we should. I think what a lost person is seeking is sin and self. But if we did use that word, I think we should use it later on in the process, after, after the preaching of the cross, you know, after this guy knows what's up with God's judgment and God's message of the cross and what's coming at him. But just to look out amongst the, the lost in our city and say, oh, they're just a bunch of seekers, and what we should do is barbecue and have donuts on Sunday, and then we can invite them into our church and hug them, and they'll get saved because we're so nice and they'll love us. No. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, very clear, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. And so why, why would we ever call a lost person a seeker? The Bible says nobody seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So if God doesn't intervene in the life of a sinner... If God doesn't personally intervene, if God doesn't get into his life and do something, that sinner is never, ever going to seek God. Now, he may seek after a God. I mean, obviously, everybody's got a God. Everybody says, oh, God is love, and he make you know, God Santa Claus, and God gives me everything I want, you know, like Ray Comfort says. He's the divine butler, so God, give me this and God, give me that. Um, but to seek after the one true God. That sinner is not going to do that, guaranteed. Guaranteed because the Bible says he won't, okay? Now, Jesus talked about this in John chapter 6, one of the most misunderstood chapters in the entire Bible, okay? Um, John chapter 6. But in John chapter 6, verse 44, okay, favorite verse of our Calvinistic brethren, um, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up the last day, okay? Just like we saw in Romans chapter 3 that the Bible says very, very clearly that no man seeketh after God. There are no seekers. Okay, nobody seeks God. John 6, says very clearly that no man can come to Jesus Christ unless God the Father draws him. Okay, so we're not going to negate that. We're not going to try and say anything different. Uh, in this same chapter, John chapter 6, verse 65, says, And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Now, there's a couple other verses here that you might want to look at, 37, 39. We won't take the time to read them, but the, the, point, the point's the same. Man does not seek God. So if God doesn't intervene, man will never come to Jesus Christ. God has to draw him first. God has to draw the sinner to himself. God has to take that lost sinner who is running away from Christ and running towards sin and self, and he has, to, he has to give him enough to get turned around, okay? And so this is where salvation begins. God draws men to himself. Now, here's my contention, and I'm going to go to uh, John chapter 12, verse 32, because I think the Bible's clear again. Okay, look, we, we, looked, at, we looked at Romans 3.10 uh, to 12. That, that passage is, is clear as day that no man will ever, ever seek after the one true God of the Bible. They'll seek after other gods. They'll seek after even a, a Christianized pagan god. I mean, they'll seek after anything and everything, but they will not seek out the Creator, okay? The God of the Bible. Um, the Bible is also just as clear 
in saying that because man doesn't seek after God, if God doesn't do something to intervene in their lives, they'll never come to Christ. God must draw the sinner to himself. So here's my contention based on what the Bible says. It's another very, very clear verse, okay? God draws all men to himself. Did you catch that? God draws all men to himself. You say, oh, well, that's just general grace and not specific grace. No, 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 no. Those are unbiblical terms. You made that up, okay? The Bible says, John 12, 32, this is Jesus Christ talking, God in the flesh, Scripture, inspired. It is, it's, it's God's Word says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now, that's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the words of God himself. Jesus Christ said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. So he was lifted up on the cross. He died on the cross three days later. He was lifted up from the grave. He rose again, the resurrection. And then after 40 days, he was lifted up again to sit at the right hand of the Father in the ascension there in uh, Acts chapter 1. So Jesus Christ has been lifted up. He said, I will draw all all men unto me. And so that's exactly what he's doing during the church age. He's drawing all men unto himself. You say, well, how does he do that? I think he does that in three ways. I think he does that first through creation, okay? Psalm 19 speaks of that. We'll run back there, take a peek at this one. First six verses after that, the, the psalm talks about the uh, the law of God uh, applicable to the, to the Scripture um, and what God does to manifest himself through Scripture. But the first Six verses in Psalm 19, if I can get there. I'm 24, 11, 17. There we are, 19. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, now the rest of the whole passage to to verse 6 just basically takes that general statement and develops it. The heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter the speech, night unto night show with knowledge there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So that means it's universal, this speech of creation, it's universal. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom. And he goes on. Okay, he goes on. The point being, God uses creation. Why or how? Well, God uses creation to, to show men that there's a creator. And I know, you know, I've, I've used this enough out on the streets. Um, yes, I know. I stole it from Ray Comfort. Okay, sue me. Um, it's, it's the painter and the painting. You know, if you see a painting, you know there's a painter. It's the construction and the constructor or building builder. If you see a building, you know there's a builder. Well, if you see design and there's a designer, the creation, the Bible says that creation speaks of a creator. You can't have a creation without a creator. There, this is simply... No atheists in the world. If people believe in God when they're born and they grow up believing in God because they see creation and they know there's something else out there besides them, then they go to college and or high school now and get educated uh, out of their faith, out of their belief in God, and and told that evolution is an actual reality. When all evolution is is the religion of the professing professing atheist, right? Well, Romans one nineteen and twenty, Paul takes this same tack. And he takes this same idea, and he 
he basically touches on the core issue. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So people say, well, I I don't believe in God because I can't see God. Well, God said that the invisible things of him Okay, the things that is, uh, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. How? Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So you can understand the Godhead, that God exists, his eternal power, that he is om- uh, omnipotent. You can understand certain things about God by just looking and pondering about creation. So God convicts the sinner, firstly, through the testimony of creation. Why do you think educated people try to educate other people out of their belief in a creator God? It's because they're convicted by the thought of a creator. They're convicted of that because it means the creator, because he made this place and made us, he's in charge and I'm not. And so they have to go on this lifelong quest to to build this belief system that there is no God. Okay? It's ridiculous. Creation speaks of a very big, very intelligent creator. So God draws all men to himself first through the testimony of creation and then through conscience. This one's fun, right? You got a conscience. I know you do. You may have seared your conscience so that you don't feel it anymore like a callus from a burn on your hand. But but the conscience is a gift from God. Romans 2 verses 14 to 16. It's the full-mentioned passage on the conscience, if you would. It says in Romans 2.14, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. So Gentiles, which don't have a written law, like the Jews, well, they got a law, it's written on their hearts. It says in verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So God gave every man a conscience, and God uses that conscience to convict sinners of right and wrong. You know, if you look back and you think back, and this had this thought, you know, kind of takes me back to the garden. And God says, you know, there's all of these trees, even the tree of life, and you can eat of all the trees freely. But of this one tree, don't eat. And that tree was called the what? Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the knowledge of good and evil? It's your conscience. So man got a conscience when he fell. That's why we see that the following dispensation, what God dispensed after the fall of man, out back in um, uh, Genesis 3 and 4, you see that that next dispensation was made um, as a dispensation of law by conscience. The only thing God gave to man to, to lead him was the conscience that he obtained by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So your conscience is that innate knowledge of right and wrong, the innate knowledge of good and evil. Now, obviously, our conscience becomes informed 
through society, through education, uh, basically through living life. But we are born with the ability to discern between right and wrong. And God uses that ability to discern between right and wrong to convict us of the fact that we have not always done the good we should have. You think, well, I should have done this or I should have done that, and your conscience makes you guilty. It's like when you see a car wreck, and you you see the car wreck, and it's just a little fender bender, and all of a sudden you get this feeling in your gut like you ought to stop and make sure everybody's okay because you're a witness, but but you're late for work, or you want to get home, or you're hungry and trying to get to the drive-thru before it stacks up, or whatever excuse you have, and you don't stop, and you feel bad about it. That's your conscience. Okay, that's your conscience. And then... The conscience also convicts us when we do bad things, knowing that they're bad. And the, the easiest one is lying. I mean, who doesn't know lying to deceive somebody is wrong? Okay, so when you lied to deceive your mama, or when you lied to deceive your friend, or your teacher, or your wife, or your whoever, when you lied to deceive someone, how did you feel? Do you feel like, whew, that was a great thing to do? Oh, yeah, that was good. No, your conscience convicted you, okay? And so the conscience testifies to the fact that we know right and wrong. And that bothers us because when we put that together with the fact that God made us, he made us with a conscience, and we can discern between right and wrong, the fact that there's a creation and a conscience testifies to the fact that God exists and he is a moral being, It bothers us because it shows us, it testifies to us, that God distinguishes between right and wrong, and he convicts those who do wrong. And so so conviction, we're talking about this first means of, of, of evangelism. How does it start? Because no man will seek after God. Well, it starts with conviction, and God will will draw men to himself through the testimony of creation, through the testimony of conscience. And then, like I said, in, in John 12, 32, where Jesus Christ gave that promise about, you know, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself— we can rest assured that he is doing that because of what he said in John 16. John 16, verses 7 to 11. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Okay, so after the resurrection, after Christ is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. How? Well, he sent his Spirit, it says, into all the world to reprove all men everywhere. Don't talk to me about limited atonements and, and, and predestination and all that silliness. No, the Bible says God is drawing all men to himself through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God working in all the world to reprove all men everywhere of sin, their sin, their personal sin, and then righteousness, God's righteousness, that he's righteous, he's never sinned, and then the judgment to come, which is why all men fear death. All men fear death. They have to face God. And don't tell me, don't, look, look. The Bible says in 1 John, Perfect love casteth out fear. 
So you could say, maybe somebody could say, oh, I don't fear God. Well, maybe you don't know God. I think the more you know God, the more you're going to fear God, and you'll fear judgment. You say, well, how could that be? Why do I what, fear, fear God? Well, perfect love casteth out fear. We have not yet been made perfect. We're not perfect yet. We're not in this state of completion, perfection, the end of, of God's work in us. Once that happens, well, then I don't think we're going to fear the judgment. I think we'll already have gone through the judgment. But until that day, you're just the biggest mess as I am. And even though we're saved, we still fear the judgment that awaits us, the judgment seat of Christ, because we know we haven't been as faithful as we should have been. So, look, salvation begins with God. God has to personally intervene in the life of a sinner. He convicts that sinner. He does that through creation and conscience, conscience and then the special convicting work of the Holy Spirit. But this personal conviction of the sinner through what we might call general revelation, it's not enough to save him. It just makes him feel bad, right? I don't know how you got saved, and I don't know about your testimony, but if I've heard it enough from, from a number of people where they knew that if they died, they were going to bust hell wide open. They knew before, before they ever heard the gospel, they were like, yeah, I don't want to die. I, I, I'm going to hell. You know, And I've had enough conversations with people out on the streets that if you can find somebody that's honest with you and will just simply open up, you, know, you ask them, where do you, where do you think you're going to go when you die? And they'll probably look at you and say, well... I'm probably going to go to hell. Don't want to. I'd rather go to heaven, but I think I'm going to go to hell. Well, why is that? Well, it's because of the witness of God through creation, conscience, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so that brings us to means number two, the cross, the preaching of the cross to the sinner. This is 1 Corinthians 1.18-21, and this is one of my favorite parts, okay? I confess, one of my favorite parts, and we're kind of we're kind of bleeding over to what's what we're going to see in the next podcast about the uh, the goals, the goals of uh, of evangelism, and that's that's the part that that we're responsible for. So this kind of gets me a little bit fired up. But First Corinthians one eighteen, Paul talks about First Corinthians one eighteen about this preaching of the cross. Okay, preaching of the cross. Now, I think I'm going to back up. Because he talks about, yeah, I want to start in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 1.17, because Paul says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so Paul is the primary steward of the stewardship that was dispensed to the church, okay? This stewardship that we have as stewards during the church age, okay? Our dispensation, what was dispensed to us, was dispensed to the primary steward, Paul. That's why Paul can say to us, follow me as I follow Christ, because Paul's our example. Paul's the primary steward, we are secondary stewards, okay? He got, he got the, dis, the dispensation direct from God, and then he passed that dispensation along to his spiritual children, us. We are secondary uh, stewards in the, in, the, in the church age. God has dispensed this responsibility, this stewardship to us. What did he dispense? Well, Christ sent Paul to preach the gospel. Folks, that is our primary responsibility in what God dispensed to us in our stewardship. So, so when he says, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. In verse 18, he goes on and he says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And you say, no, wait a minute. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who would believe. Yes, that gospel must be preached. Okay, Francis of Assisi. He said, what, what did he say? You know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Folks, that's stupid, okay? I am so sorry to use that word. It's just dumb. When, when God said, look, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and he says right here, the power of God is the preaching of the cross. you got to go out and preach. Look, that the word has to proceed from your mouth. It has to be spoken. Verse 21, 1 Corinthians 121. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God has in the church age, through our dispensation, our responsibility, our stewardship, he has ordained preaching as a means of saving sinners. Folks, you can't get around it. You cannot get around it. It is not by dreams. It is not by visions. It is not by anything. It is by the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the cross. It's the message of the cross. So, so what do we see in the message of the cross? Three things. We preach law, grace, and decision. Oh, yes. Oh, 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 I use that word. Decision. Yes, there is a decision to be made. We preach law, grace, and decision. That means we speak of God's justice, God's love, and the decision of the believer to do something about it. So the first message of the cross is the law. When you approach the cross, this is what you see. When you approach the cross, this is the first message you're met with. Why? Because you're guilty. We're not going to talk about God's love and God's grace and any decision that you need to make before we talk about God's law. Because when you look at salvation, especially in the New Testament, okay, but it's all through the Bible, soteriology, it is all couched in terms that are legal in nature. Salvation is a legal concept in the Bible. Yes, I know uh, there's an aspect, an organic aspect to it, because we're born again, we're made members of the body of Christ, but that only happens after we are justified. Okay? So it's legal in nature. We broke God's law, and now we have to pay the fine. The fine is death. That's what God said. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, back in Genesis chapter 2, when he told Adam, in the day that you eat of this tree, thou shalt surely die. So God established a death penalty for our rebellion and our disobedience to his law, whatever law that would be. Okay, so the cross, the first message of the cross is God's law. It is God's justice. There is no other place in the Bible outside of the cross of Jesus Christ where you can see the justice of God manifested like it is at the cross. Because if God spared not his own son, and that for the sins of others, how will the individual sinner ever escape God's justice? You know, if, if, if God was willing to punish his son 
for the sins of others that he took upon himself, that he became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. If God spared not his own son, how do you think you're going to get out, get away? How do you think the individual sinner is ever going to escape God's justice? God will punish lawbreakers for every infraction of his law, every last one of them, every infraction, thought, word, and deed. He will, he will seek out, root out every last infraction of his law. And so God uses the preaching of the cross, the preaching of law, the preaching of justice to put fear in the heart of the sinner, fear of God, fear of justice, fear of judgment. So the preaching of the cross is a means that God uses to lead sinners, to draw them to repentance, okay? Repentance. That's why. That's why our churches are full of believers who have no interest in God or the Bible at all. They have no desire in the Great Commission. They don't want to witness to anybody. They don't want to clear up their language. They don't want to dress right. They don't want to stop stop shacking up with people that aren't their spouse. They don't want to stop sinning. They definitely don't want to pray. They don't want to read the Bible. Why? Well, because they never heard the preaching of the cross. They were, they were sold a false bill of goods, the modern gospel of just believe and everything will be great. No. You need to understand, every sinner needs to understand that God's law has been broken, God is the just judge of all the earth, and his justice was manifest on that cross. That ought to put the fear of God in the heart of a sinner. He ought to look at that and think, oh my, God's going to squash me like a ripe melon. And that's healthy, because it'll lead him to repentance. He'll want to stop doing the things that make God angry with him. That's repentance. But there's also a message of grace. The message of the cross is a message of grace, because God's love is manifest on the cross. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Yes, God poured out his wrath on his Son, but he did so because he loved the world. And through that that sacrifice on the cross, because of his love and by his grace, God provided for all the world a way to be saved from his wrath, a way that we can experience his love. And so, yes, we preach the law. Yes, we preach justice. Yes, it's the, I mean, God's word is a hammer. Man, it comes down hard sometimes. But the message of the cross is also a message of grace. It's a message of God's love. You know, God spared not his own son. He poured out the wrath that we deserve on Jesus Christ so that we could be justified. We broke the law, yes, but Jesus loved us enough to pay our fine. We were condemned to death, to die under the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ took that place for all of us. And so God uses the preaching of the cross, the announcement of his grace and love, to put hope and desire in the heart of a sinner. You know, the sinner can fear God, and he can fear judgment, he can fear death, he can fear justice, but once he sees the love of God in Jesus Christ, he's not going to run from God. He's going to run from sin to the Savior. So we need to preach the law, yes, to lead someone to repentance, but then we need to announce God's grace, God's clemency because of his love. So the preaching of the cross will lead sinners to faith in Christ. They'll flee from sin 
that which makes God angry, and they'll flee to Christ, the Savior, who died for them. Now that takes us to Romans chapter 10. Now this is a passage we're going to spend some time in. This is a passage I'm going to talk about right now just a little bit, and then I'm going to come back to it here in just a few more minutes. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 17. In the context of this means, the preaching of the cross being a means that God established, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, yeah, it says preaching of the cross. It's a very good, it's a good springboard. But if you want a full-mentioned passage about the preaching uh, of the cross, the preaching of the gospel being a means by which God saves, this is it. Okay, Romans 10, 13 to 17. Verse 17, it says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Okay? That's the end of the chap. That's the end of the passage I want to read. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Now, as I read that verse, I want you to just take a quick inventory. I want you to take note of what the first thoughts were that came through your head. Because I would venture to say that when I read that verse, you thought about a message you heard or about a devotional you read or about something someone said about you as a Christian. If you want to grow in your faith, if you want to become more faithful and have more faith in God, that will only come by hearing the Word. So you need to spend time in the Word with good preaching and good teaching in order to grow in your faith. Okay, that, that is what we're going to talk about just a little later. Because what I want to show you here is the faith that comes by hearing is the saving faith that comes from hearing the Word of God, the Gospel. Verse 13, Romans 10, 13. Let's take this whole thing in context. Paul says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that's the goal. We're looking at evangelism. God takes a a, 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 a sinner, okay? I was going to say saved sinner, an unsaved sinner. He's to take a, a guy lost in his sin, and he leads him to salvation in Jesus Christ. So that's our goal, saved, verse 13. Verse 14 says, Well, how then shall they call upon call on him in whom they have not heard? Whoops. I jumped ahead of myself. Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. They have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the preaching of the cross is the principal means by which God gives the sinner saving faith. What the sinner does with that faith that God gives him when he hears the gospel is up to the sinner. That's the sinner's decision. Yes, I said that word again. But God gives him the faith, enough faith through the preaching of the gospel to be saved. So the preaching of the cross is the means God uses to lead sinners to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the preaching of the cross starts with God's law, manifests God's justice. It makes the, the sinner thirsty for repentance and grace. So we preach grace and love. That's also a message of the cross, and that should lead that sinner to faith in Christ. The preaching of the cross, preaching of the gospel, law and grace leads that, that, that sinner to a belief in Christ. So the, the final message of the cross is one of decision. And I think of, when I, when, I, when I talk about this, I think of the two malefactors, okay? That's such a cool word. We never use that anymore, and it's such a malefactors, you know, malefactors. I love it. So you got these two thieves, these two malefactors, these two lawbreakers who were crucified with Christ, one on his left hand and one on his right. One of them repented, if you'll remember, and he asked Christ for salvation. The other one did not. So that is where the sinner is left when confronted with the preaching of the cross of Christ. Repent and believe, or continue in your lawlessness and perish. And it is the decision of the sinner. Okay? So, the preaching of the cross is the preaching of the gospel. It has three basic elements. We preach law, grace, and decision. That means we preach the justice of God, the love of God, and the conversion of the sinner through repentance and faith. He must decide. He must choose to repent and turn from sin and self, and then he must choose to place his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God has chosen as a means of saving lost sinners. They must hear the gospel proclaimed in some fashion. Now, I, I want to make a side note here because I've been talking a lot about preaching, and I, I sometimes make the mistake of not explaining myself because I'm one of those guys, I really like to, to preach on the streets, I really like to stand on my red coat crate and announce the gospel to the lost out in the open air. I like that, so that's preaching. But what we're talking about here is not so much just street preaching or open air preaching, we're talking about the authoritative proclamation of the gospel. That's the definition we want to work with. You can authoritatively proclaim the gospel one-on-one. -on -one. You could sit down over a cup of coffee and a muffin, and you could talk to somebody and just ask them, you know, hey, where do you go when you die? You know, And then you could lead them through authoritatively showing them the law, the grace of God, and lead them to the cross of Jesus Christ and the decision they, they need to make. When I say authoritative, I don't mean someone behind a pulpit just pounding and pounding and hollering and screaming. That's not authoritative. Authoritative is, thus saith the Lord. That's what the Bible says. You know, when Shane Sanderson led me, to G led me to Christ back in 1988, that's the one thing that he did different than everybody else, because I had other people before him witness to me, but it never took. Okay, I understood and, uh, what they were telling me, but it all sounded, no, what, what Shane did with me is he kept opening his Bible, and he would say, well, the Bible says, and then I would come back, and he would say, well, the Bible says, and then I would have an objection, he would say, well, the Bible says, and then I would have an argument, and he would say, well, the Bible says. And so... After our first encounter and that first witness that he gave me, I walked back to my apartment completely and totally convicted of sin because he just showed me what God said. And he was nice about it. He was direct. He was nice about it. It upset me. But it wasn't so much that he was, he was doing it. It was the Scripture. So when I, when I talk about preaching, what we're talking about is an authoritative 
proclamation of the gospel. And you can do that with, with a very nice and sweet spirit. You can do that with, you know, as a friend, as a family member. You can do that as very lovingly, very kind, very gentle. But you, you announce that with authority. That's what God said. Yeah, God said, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't covet. You did that. So the Bible says that you condemned yourself to death, and the Bible says that the second death is a lake of fire. The Bible says, so it's thus saith the Lord. Not my opinion. I, I, I love you. I like you. I'll buy your muffin for you. Okay, but the authoritative proclamation of the gospel is, thus saith the Lord. We're, we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. He has sent us to represent him. And so we don't have to earn the right to preach the gospel. Sorry, that, that, goes, right, that goes right along with seeker-sensitive church services. That should hit the, the dung gate and be flushed out of the city as fast as possible. No, we don't earn the right to preach the gospel because the Lord Jesus Christ told us to go preach the gospel. You don't have to earn the right. We speak with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so so don't think this is all, this is pounding the pulpit and hollering on the street and barking at somebody, you know, pointing your finger at them, you repent or you're going to bust hell wide open. It's not what we're talking about is authoritative preaching. Authoritative preaching is what you see over and over and over again in the Old Testament prophets. Thus saith the Lord. That's authoritative preaching. God sent those prophets with his word, and so they just stood up and told God's people, thus saith the Lord. And that's what God expects us to do. We go and talk to, to people, we witness to them, and it's not our opinion. I'm sorry if it goes right up their nose and offends them. Let the gospel offend them, okay? Let's not be offensive ourselves. Okay, so that was a little side note. I talk about preaching. Understand, preaching is just simply a, an authoritative proclamation of the gospel, okay? So sinners need to hear the gospel proclaimed in some fashion in order to be saved. And so this leads me back to Romans chapter 10, and, and I'm going to take just a little bit more time because I think this passage needs some more ex explanation. I think we need to emphasize some things so that we clearly understand what our stewardship responsibility is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because just like Paul, Jesus Christ did not send us to baptize. Yes, we baptize people. I'm not a I'm not a, what they call, dry cleaners. Okay, I, I, I baptize people. I was a pastor. I baptize people. I believe in baptism, believer's baptism. I don't have a problem with that. But God did not send, send us principally to, to, to baptize people. He sent us to preach the gospel, just like he did Paul. And so let's take a, a little bit closer look at Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 17. Through the preaching of the gospel, this passage teaches us that God gives the sinner sufficient faith to be saved. Okay? Now, like I said, I think the core truth of this passage is lost because of our presuppositions. Okay? Verse 17, it says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Okay? We, we often say that we need to read the Bible, we need to study the Bible, we need to listen to good biblical teaching and preaching. Because why? Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So if you want to grow in your faith, you want to become more faithful, you need to hear the word, you need to grow in the word. And, and honestly, why does that stick in our brain so much? Well, because there's, there's truth in that statement. Okay, that's, that's, that's really the, what we're talking about is the renewing of our mind. 
If you're a Christian, you need to spend the first hours of your day, first hours, listen to me, Mr. Super Spiritual, um, you need to spend some time in your Bible during those first few moments of your day. Okay, I don't know how long you, you have, if you got an hour, or, you know, half hour, I don't know. You need to spend some time in your Bible before you get started on your day so that God can renew your mind and get you focused on the things you need to be focused on, which are things eternal. Before you get caught up in the in in the things of the, the your job and your family and your wife and your kids or whatever, and you get you get you get taken downstream uh, by your day's tasks. Okay, get in the book. Let that let the Bible renew your mind. That's important, and so that that concept that principle fits perfectly in this verse, verse seventeen. That faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So please spend time in your Bible so you can grow in faith. The only problem with using this verse to teach that principle is it is totally out of context. I know it fits. I know it fits. I'm probably guilty of using this verse myself. You could probably go through my books. Some of the books I've written are in Spanish, so unless unless you know Spanish, you won't be able to pin me down on it. But look, I probably use this passage to teach that principle. Okay? The only problem with it is not what the passage says. The word that that the sinner hears in this verse is the message that was preached in the previous verses. Okay? So it says, so then, that ties it back to the previous verses. Faith cometh by hearing. Well, what are they hearing? The hearing by the word of God. So they're hearing a word of God, the word of God. Well, what word is that? Verse 16 but they have not all obeyed the gospel. It's the gospel that, that they, they must obey for salvation. They have to hear it first. That's the word that's being preached. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the gospel. That's the word. Verse 15, how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. You see, that is the, the word of God that they are hearing that builds faith. It's the message of the gospel of peace, peace with God, reconciliation between enemies. Verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then we go into this, how how does this happen? Verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him, in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So then by faith, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So this hearing is the hearing of the preacher, and the preacher is sent in verse 15 to preach the gospel. So that, that's, that's the context. And, and don't miss the truth, because look, look, here's, here's the truth. Here's the truth of the matter. And this ought, to, this ought to really give us a lot of confidence to go out and preach, preach the gospel. This passage says that when a sinner hears the gospel preached, law, grace, decision. When he hears the gospel preached, God gives him sufficient faith to be saved every time. Did you hear that? I know you don't believe me. I'll say it again. Yeah, maybe it'll stick, maybe it won't. When the sinner hears the gospel preached, law, grace, 
decision. God gives them sufficient faith to be saved, and God gives them sufficient faith to be saved every time. Because it says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So that faith that comes by hearing is hearing the gospel. It is saving faith. The hearing that results in saving faith is the hearing of the preaching of the gospel. Okay, so what what the sinner does with that faith that God just gave him, whether he exercises that faith or whether he refuses to exercise that faith is his decision. So we're going to continue with our means. I'm beginning to run out of time. I've almost kept you here an hour. What we're doing is we're looking at what God has given, means of, of evangelism. Means number one, conviction. Salvation begins with God personally convicting the individual sinner. He does that through creation, conscience, and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God. That personal conviction of the sinner is not enough to save him, just makes him feel bad. Okay, so he needs to hear the message of the gospel. And God has, in our age, the church age, he has ordained preaching, authoritative communication, preaching as a means of saving sinners. We're called to preach God's law. It is God's justice that is manifested on the cross. We are to preach God's grace because God's love is also manifest on the cross. And we are to preach man's decision. He has a decision to make. It is a decision of conversion, repentance, and faith. It's illustrated in the two malefactors who were crucified with Christ. One repented and asked Christ for salvation. The other did not and perished in his sins. And this leads us to our next point. The third means of evangelism is conversion. The conversion of the sinner. Okay, this is 1 Thessalonians 1.9. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You know, I think one of the great things about podcasts is you can put me on pause. And so I really don't have to worry too much about going too long. I used to, when I was a pastor, I'd watch the clock, you know, and start running um, just so I could keep it under the time, get people home to watch the football game or eat their food or whatever they were doing. Um, but if you need to pause me and then and then start it up later, that's great. Um, because I want to talk about this stuff. This 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 stuff... This is how we evangelize. This is how evangelism happens. Okay, so this is important. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, talking about the conversion of the sinner. Paul says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The sinner who has heard the gospel, sinner, he's convicted by the Holy Spirit, you know, through creation and conscience and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and then he hears the gospel preached, you know, law, grace, and decision. He is confronted with that decision, that he must repent and turn from sin, place his faith and trust and turn to Christ in order to be saved. That's what this verse says. He turned to God from idols, and it says he turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So the, the conversion speaks of a turning from sin to God that results in a life of service to the living and true God, not of service to sin and self. You know, if somebody just adds Jesus Christ to their life like some some new sofa, you know, hey, this is going to bring me some happiness, or a new car, boy, that's really going to make me feel good on the inside. That doesn't change their life a bit. 
You know, that's the false and modern gospel, that Jesus Christ is just your, your divine butler, or Jesus Christ is your life enhancement, that, you know, he's going to fill that, that, that Jesus-shaped heart, uh, Jesus-shaped hole in your heart, and he's going to make you happy. That, that's ridiculous. I want to ask, how many people that attended church today, because I, I'm, okay, it's Sunday, you know, it's in the evening, I went to church, how many people that attended church today are actually serving the living and true God? Serving Him. You say, oh, well, I serve God. Do you read His Word, study His Word, so that you can understand what God expects of you as a servant? And are you obeying His Word as His servant? Or are you serving according to your own desires and your own ideas? That's the problem. That's the problem. And so a true conversion is converting from sin and self to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's repentance and faith, and it will bear fruit in service to the living God, the one true living God. Okay? So that's our conversion, the conversion of the sinner. And this um, this, this all starts with repentance. Okay, now, I know there's a big hoo-ha in, uh, in churches today about repentance uh, in, in the context. I'm, I'm talking and trying to find Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, 30 and 31. That a lot of people say repentance is a work, and so repentance is not necessary for salvation. Um, and frankly, uh, no, that's just, I'm sorry, it's just wrong. And I've had the conversation with people. I even had one pastor tell me I wasn't welcome back in his in his pulpit because I preached uh, repentance and made a bunch of his church members feel convicted and unsaved. And 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 he told me go away. So um, that hurt. That hurt my feelings. Um, but here we are. And what does the Bible say? Because frankly, that's what it all boils down to. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says in Acts chapter seventeen. Verses 30 and 31, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God commands that. Commands that. Commands that. He commands that, because he hath appointed a, uh, he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given him assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Okay, um... God commands all men everywhere to repent. That means they need to confess their sin and forsake it. That, that's, it's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. You repent. You stop it. Okay? Stop it. Now, if salvation can come without repentance, that means I can continue in my rebellion and still be saved. You see, what, what did Adam do? Go right back to the first sin of mankind. God said, don't eat of that tree. And Adam rebelled and disobeyed. He ate of that tree. So what God does through repentance is call us to recognize the wrong that we have done, that we have been rebellious, we have not been submissive, we have not been obedient, but rather disobedient to the law he wrote on our hearts, giving us a conscience to testify to it, and we repent. We have a change of mind. And we say, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore because that's making God angry. And I don't want God's anger and wrath. I want God's love. I want his clemency. I want his forgiveness. I want his grace. I want his love. 
God, I did that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I won't do it again. Because if you do it again, it's going to make God angry, right? So repentance, this is what Paul preached. Acts 20.20. Book says, the Bible says, Acts 20.20, and how I, Paul, kept nothing back that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Without repentance, there is no salvation. That's why the Bible speaks of obeying the gospel. Obeying the gospel. Go back to Romans chapter 10 if you're following me around in the Bible. Romans 10, verse 16. Romans 10, 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. The Bible speaks of the gospel being obeyed because the gospel commands repentance. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. I had a couple more of these. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. Hebrews 5, verse 9. Bible says, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Obedience is part of the gospel message. It is a command to be obeyed. 1 Peter 4.17. 1 Peter 4.17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So look, without repentance, there is simply no salvation, because the sinner is still in rebellion. You know, Jesus Christ, we could go through all of the Gospels. You know, the first words out of his mouth in his public ministry, repent, like John the Baptist, repent. You know, his, his famous words in Luke chapter 13, verse 3 and 5, it's a, Luke 13, 3 is repeated in 13, 5, it's the same words, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Yes, repent. If you don't repent, you're going to perish. Why? Because you're still in your rebellion. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent. Turn from sin. And if you turn from sin, then you need to turn to Jesus Christ by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Like Ray Comfort says, you need to trust in Jesus Christ like you trust in a parachute if you had to throw yourself from a plane. You still might be scared to jump out of the plane, okay? You still might be scared to die. I don't know, okay? Uh, I'm really not looking forward to the day, okay? I hope it comes quick. I hope I don't have to suffer. But regardless, where's our trust? If you had to jump from a burning plane at 30,000 feet, even though you didn't really know if that parachute's going to open up or not, or if you had any skydiving experience at all or training, you'd put that parachute on and you'd jump out of that plane because that's your only salvation. And you'd trust that parachute Okay, you'd strap it on, you'd hold tight to it, and you'd trust it completely. You would let go of your luggage to put on that parachute, just like you'd repent of your sin to grab hold of Jesus Christ and trust him as your salvation and your only hope of salvation. Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 21. 
But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. That's what God did for us, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So we repent of sin, we turn from sin, and then we turn to Jesus Christ in faith. We trust in him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, trust him and him only for salvation. So when we speak of a decision, okay, the sinner needs to decide. We are talking about this decision to convert to Christ. It is the conversion decision. The sinner's convicted by the Spirit. He's heard the gospel. God has given him sufficient faith to be saved. And now it's time to choose, to decide if he will turn from sin and self and place his faith that God just gave him through the preaching of the gospel, to place that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or he can choose to continue in his sin. He can throw that faith away, turn away from it. Thousands, millions do and go his own way. And yet, okay, yet, and here we come to our fourth means of evangelism. We all know that a decision to convert to Christ, man's decision to repent and, and place his faith and trust in Christ does not save the sinner. Sinners cannot save themselves. Salvation is from God. God saves. So that's the fourth means and the final means of salvation. I call this the regeneration of the sinner by the Spirit of God. So God places this condition for salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And that, of course, constitutes repentance and faith. It's not just mental assent. It is the conversion combination of repentance and faith. And when the sinner does that, when the sinner meets God's conditions for, for salvation, the conversion, when the sinner meets God's conditions, God saves him, okay? God saves him, and God saves him by sealing him with his Holy Spirit. This is Ephesians 1, 12 to 14. Ephesians 1, 12 to 14, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom, in Christ, ye also trusted. After what? After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. See, you have to hear it to be saved. Well, you hear it, you believe it, you're saved. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. And so when the sinner meets the requirements that God has established for salvation, belief in Christ, which is which is that conversion, you know, I stop the, the sinning and I place my faith and trust in Christ, I'm trusting him, I've repented and placed my faith in him, well, God seals that sinner with his Holy Spirit and grants him eternal life. Now, obviously, obviously, this is also the, the, the time... When God forgives the sinner of all his sins, Colossians 2.13. Colossians 2.13, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together, made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So it's at this moment when God forgives the sin, the sins of the sinner, all of them, past, present, and future. This is also the moment that the sinner is justified, okay, where God declares the sinner legally right with him, because Jesus Christ paid the fine. This is back to Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith 
in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, unto, uh, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So in that moment, when, he, when the sinner converts to Christ, repentance and faith, that's the moment of the sinner's justification. That's when God declares him legally righteous. Why? Because God applies the payment that Jesus Christ made on the cross to the sinner's account, and the debt is paid in full. But in this moment, Titus chapter 3, okay, Titus chapter 3, and this is where I, I pull out this, this, this idea, Titus chapter 3. In that moment, when God seals the, 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 the new believer with the Holy Spirit of God, in that moment when he forgives the sinner all his sins, past, present, and future, in that moment when he is legally justified, declared righteous because of the payment of Jesus Christ, well, in that moment, a child of the devil, a child of disobedience, becomes a child of God through the new birth. Something this is something that is unique to our 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 church age. Okay, up to this point, Israel will, will receive the Spirit at the second coming of Christ, but up to this point, this is unique with us. And so in the church age, Titus 3, 4, and 5 says that God saves the sinner by the washing of regeneration by the Spirit. Titus 3, 5. Start in verse 4. But after that the kingdom and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And so in our age, in the church age, we are saved by the washing of the regeneration, or the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit of God. Now that's why if someone doesn't have the Spirit of God, they're not saved. Okay, Romans 8 verse 9 says, Romans 8 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Okay, if someone doesn't have the Spirit of God, they are not saved. I don't care what these weird, wacky Christian sects say about the second blessing, and if you have you received the Holy Spirit, and, and you have to do something to get the Spirit of God. No. When you repent and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are born again by the Spirit of God. That's your salvation. You are sealed unto the day of redemption when Jesus Christ comes back for us and gives us our, our glorified bodies. It's a done deal. Everyone that is saved in the church age Every last one of us, even the carnalest of carnal Christians, the Corinthians, everyone that is saved in the church age has received the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made, all made to drink into one Spirit. Everybody's got it. Okay? Everybody. So, at this point, the regeneration of of a sinner, okay, the, the, the sinner becomes born again by the indwelling Holy Spirit, the work of evangelism is done. It's finished. It's over, and the sinner is saved. God has moved the sinner through a process, and he has brought him to the point of salvation. The means 
God has used to get that sinner to salvation are four. Conviction, cross, conversion, and the regeneration. Okay, The personal conviction of the sinner through creation and conscience and the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. Personal conviction. Then the preaching of the cross. It's the gospel, law, grace, and decision. Then we have the conversion of the sinner because the sinner must respond to the gospel preached. He must repent and place his faith and trust in Christ. He turns from sin to Jesus Christ in faith. And in that moment, God saves him in the regeneration of the sinner by the Spirit of God. In the church age, we are saved by the washing of the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So we're done, and here's my conclusion. I'm going to hit you with the question. We'll talk about a couple of things, and then we're going to leave it for, for, the, for the next podcast, okay? I want to ask you a question. What then hinders the salvation of lost sinners? Okay, we just saw this whole process through which God will take a sinner and save him. It's four, four big chunks, okay? Four components, four elements of the process. Four steps, if you want. Stages. I don't care what you want to call them. They're means that God has used to get a sinner to salvation. What hinders the salvation of lost sinners? When you think through these four means that God has established to save sinners, where is the weak link? Think about that. 1 Thessalonians 2.16 this is, this is interesting. Look at this. 1 Thessalonians 2.16. Paul refers to some people, uh, some people that were opposing him, and he says, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Paul says someone was forbidding him to speak to the Gentiles that they, the Gentiles, might be saved. The weak link in the means God has established to save sinners, the weak link is us. What hinders the salvation of sinners is us not speaking. It's us not witnessing. It's us, it's us not preaching the gospel to the lost. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 10, 13 to 17. We won't go back to read that whole passage again. But the weak link is us. You say, well, how shall they hear unless they have a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? Well, God done sent us. That's what the Great Commission is all about. Go preach the gospel. He sent us. What hinders the salvation? Paul says, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. The weak link is not God. God's already done his part. He did his part through the work of the cross and the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. God did that. It's done. He was faithful, and God is doing his part. He's convicting all sinners everywhere of sin, righteousness, judgment to come, creation, conscience, conviction uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit. God's doing that. He's faithful, and God will do his part by regenerating the repentant sinner who trusts in Christ to save him. God's faithful. I'll say it again, what hinders salvation? That has nothing to do with God. God's already at work and God's faithful. 
the weak link in the means of salvation, these means of evangelism, is us. And so that leads us to my next topic, what I want to talk about in my next podcast, goals in evangelism. You know, if the weak link is us, what are our responsibilities? What does God expect of us in the process of saving a lost sinner? There are two. Two. Now listen, two, 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 not 200, not 2,000. Two. Two goals. Two things God expects of us. Very simple. And we'll talk about them in our next message. Thanks for spending your time listening to my podcast, Theology 101. Simple is better, and it's just not that difficult to learn the Bible so we can do what it tells us. You can find the rest of my studies in English out on my website, theology101.net. And if you do Spanish, tengo más de 15 años de estudios bíblicos disponibles en mi sitio web, teología101.net. If you'd like to contact me, There's a contact page on my website. You're also more than welcome to visit me any Sunday that you wish. My church information is also out on my website. Remember what Nicholas von Zinzendorf always said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Learn the Bible, do what it tells you, and come back for more Theology 101.